Last weekend, our family was on a pre-planned trip down to Dallas, Texas to spend the weekend with some beloved friends. And the trip was great. It was nice to see those friends. It was nice to taste the riches of In-N-Out Burger once more. And it was nice to feel 60 degrees sun in our face, at least for one of those days. Don't worry, it wasn't the 20 below day that you had here. It was, it was the day we drove down. But I have to say that the icing on top of the cake of our entire trip, at least for me and probably our boys, was this unexpected opportunity that came before us while we were down there to take Noah and Eli to AT&T Stadium to watch our beloved Green Bay Packers play the Dallas Cowboys. And as you might recall, I don't know why I'm bragging about this now, the morning after what happened last night, um, the Packers absolutely demolished the Cowboys on their home field. It was a, a shredding, it was a mauling that no one saw coming, including us. But one of the lasting memories I have of that game has to do with the friends that we went with. We went with my good friend, George, and his two sons, their names are Deacon and Benji. And George is a devoted San Francisco 49ers fan, so plot twist. And he is very much committed to raising his sons in the errors of his ways as a 49ers fan. (laughs) But his sons, Deacon and Benji, they were just getting caught up in all the excitement that my boys were experiencing rooting on our Packers there in Dallas. Deacon and Benji, though 49ers fans, were green to the game. And they were rooting for the Packers for all 48 minutes of regulation. And they were even doing the chants, go, Pat, go. But then they went a little too far, as far as their father, George, was concerned. They went too far when they told George that they wanted to get Packers shirts, just like our boys had. Jordan loved T-shirts. And that's when their dad, George, who to that point had been very gracious, had had enough. That's actually when he got down on one knee before his boys, and and he looked them in the eye, and he said it with a very calm voice. He said, boys, we're 49ers fans. Uh, we're, We're not Packers fans. And today has been fun, and we're happy for our friends, but the Randolphs are Packers fans. We're 49ers fans. Enough's enough. I'll get you a 49ers shirt. I won't get you a Packers shirt. George, in other words, he wanted to make sure his boys, his sons, were rightly aligned. He wanted to make sure they knew where their allegiance as a family lied. And he also wanted to make sure that they, his boys, were rightly clothed. Now, I get that any sermon illustration can get a little too cute, and it, it'll always be imperfect, and it'll always be flawed. But I do think that what I saw in my friend George last Sunday as he instructed his boys as to how they were to be clothed, provides at least a faint parallel to what we're going to see this morning about what God expects of his children. That we not only be rightly aligned, but that we be rightly clothed. That we at all times don the proper apparel, apparel which befits being a child of God through Jesus Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. And by way of brief review here, in in chapter 3 of this book, Paul has been reminding the Colossian church and us uh, of what has already happened to them on account of their faith in Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.3, you have died. Colossians 3.1, you have been raised up. Colossians 3.9, you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Colossians 3.10, you have put on the new self. Those things have, have already happened. He's also reminded them of their pri- the priority that Christ is to take in their life. Christ, he says in Colossians 3, 4, is our life. And he says in Colossians three eleven, Christ is all. 
He's reminding them of, of, of the future that they'll share with Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, 4 again, he says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. He's reminded them of, of the behaviors that marked their old, unregenerate condition before they came to faith in Christ. We saw that in Colossians 3, 5. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. He's instructed them to put that all off as new creatures, put off further evil behavior, such as anger and wrath. I'm in verse eight now of Colossians three and and malice and slander and abusive speech from their mouth. And not only that, Colossians three, nine, they were to put off lying. And now as we turn to today's text, Colossians three, 12 through 14, we're going to see Paul guided by the Holy Spirit, of course, giving further instruction as to the behaviors and the practices, or in keeping with our clothing metaphor, the clothing that the follower of Christ is to continually be putting on. Let's take a look at our text for today. We'll be in Colossians 3, 12 through 14. God's word reads, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Now, last time we ended in Colossians 3, 10 and 11, where Paul provided more broad brush statements about our our new identity in Christ. Look at Colossians 3, 10, where he says, we've put on the new self. That's a, that's a statement about our position. By the grace of Jesus Christ, the, the old man has been put to death. He's been put aside. He, he's been shed. And we have instead, now verse 10 still, put on the new self. The new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So if we are in Christ this morning, if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are already new. We are already new creatures, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. We have put on the new self. But now as we turn to verses 12 through 14, our text for today, Paul is going to list out the new clothes that we as new creations are to wear that reflect our new position before God in Christ. Because we have put on the new self, as it says here, we should live accordingly. Just as a 49ers fan should be wearing 49ers gear, we as Christians should be putting on this apparel of Christendom or what it means to look like Jesus Christ. We should be wearing clothing, spiritual clothing that's consistent with our calling. That's the title of the sermon this morning. It's the clothing of the chosen. And the title of the message, I think, reflects what is happening in these three verses, verses 12 through 14, where we're going to see, number one, that we've been clothed with a new position That's going to be in the first part of verse 12. Number two, we're going to see that we are called to be clothed with new practices. That's the second part of verse 12 into verse 13. And then last, for our third point, we're going to see we've been clothed with a new priority. That'll go with verse 14. Clothed with a new position, clothed with new practices, and clothed with a new priority. Take a look at the first half of verse 12, if you would, our text for this morning. He says, so... As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Paul here starts with this very simple word of transition, so. The word could also be translated, therefore. He's indicating here that what he is about to say is logically linked to what he's just said. 
In other words, Paul here in Colossians isn't just cobbling together a collection of stray thoughts. Rather, there is this order and this logic to what he's writing here. It's all been building up to this point. The Colossians were at one point, Colossians 1.21, formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. They were at one point, as was true of each one of us, at enmity with God and, and eager to live without God and, and ungrateful to the very God they knew to be there, as Romans 1 indicates. They were dead in their sins. That's how it's phrased in Colossians 2.13. You were dead in your transgressions. But God brought them then to spiritual life. Continuing on in Colossians 2.13. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The sin debt which once hung over our head was carried to the cross by Christ at Calvary. And as a result, we've gone from condemned to forgiven. We've been brought from death to life. In fact, look down at the page at Colossians 3, 3. It says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We have a new identity. We have a new position. We know as we see all throughout the New Testament that we are in Christ. And as we continue on in verse 12 of our passage today, we note that Paul here lists out these three statements about that new position that we have as Christ followers. First, he says, we've been chosen of God. Let's just put this out there. For many unbelievers, and sadly for many believers, this is one of the most detested truths in all of Scripture especially for privileged Americans, where choices abound. I mean, you think about it. We float around every day, all the time, on this sea of choices that are put before us. Who should I vote for in the primary? Do I want lettuce on my burger or not? Should I put 87 grated fuel in my car or 89? Should I buy that item that's not Amazon Prime eligible? It might get here in four days instead of 24 hours. I mean, choices are all around us. We are preconditioned in the culture in which we live, in the time in which we live, in the country in which we live, to think that we get to make the choice all the time. Whether that choice is related to governing officials or delivery options or potato chip flavors. And sadly, we're also preconditioned and pre-wired to think that it must work the same way with God. We're preconditioned to think that we must get Some say in our salvation, after all, doesn't the old hymn say, I have decided to follow Jesus? Well, we need to make sure we're taking how many thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ? All of them. Every thought captive to the obedience of the word of Christ, to the word of God. And the word of God makes absolutely clear, as we see right here in Colossians 3.12, that we have been chosen of God. We didn't choose God. We didn't meet God in the middle. We didn't meet him halfway. It wasn't part God, part us. It wasn't something we could ever work our way toward, like straight A's or getting a letterman's jacket or the Timothy Award. No, our identity in Jesus Christ is a gift, and it is entirely because of the grace of God. Now, for some of you in the room, this is new. This is new information. And for others of you, you think this is all subterfuge, and Pastor Jesse's now going to show his true Calvinist colors. But to say that God is sovereign in salvation, 
and that God elects whom he's going to elect unto salvation has nothing to do with me and nothing to do with John Calvin. It's a truth that is broadcast widely and clearly all over the pages of scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New. Paul, the author, humanly speaking, of Colossians was a converted Jew, and surely not too far from his mind, as he spoke of the Christians at Colossae being chosen, not too far from his mind would have been the words that were spoken through the unchanging God of all time and eternity, through Moses, to the people of Israel, multiple millennia before, when he told them, the Israelites, that they had been chosen. Deuteronomy chapter 7. In fact, why don't you turn with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. So you're taking it right off the page here. Here we're in one of the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, and we have God here declaring through Moses certain words to the people of Israel. And look what he says here in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. We'll just pick up those two verses. Deuteronomy 7, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It says, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the other people's. For you were the fewest of all peoples. He's talking to Israel here. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. In other words, the Lord set his love on Israel. He chose Israel. Or or consider these words from Psalm 33, 12, which says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. We could find many more such statements in the 39 books of the Old Testament. And then the same idea carries over to the New Testament. Here in Colossians, uh, Paul is saying that whether a person is a Greek or a Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, he has been chosen of God. If he is in Christ, he has been chosen of God. Now a person might say, well, well, well Jesse, you're just proof texting. You're grabbing one verse and you're building your theology off that one verse. You're riding a hobby horse with no legs. Well, there really is so much more that could be said in scripture on this very matter, on this very subject, outside of Colossians, on the fact that God is the one who does the choosing. Consider just these passages. I'm going to read through them. You're free to turn to them as you will. But Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Second Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. Or Titus 1, 1 says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. You might say, okay, that's Paul. Give me an example of someone other than Paul who mentions being chosen, who mentions election. You got it. Here's Peter, 2 Peter 1.10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Here's John, 2 John 1. The elder to the chosen lady and her children. Here's Jude, Jude 1. To those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. 
Fine, you might say. So some of those later authors said something about God choosing and calling and electing. But what about Jesus? Jesus loved everyone. Jesus would never choose some and exclude others. Jesus surely would give us a choice in the matter. We'll hear the words of our Lord in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. The fact of the matter is that no one chooses God. No one in their unregenerate, unsaved, spiritually dead condition can choose God. No one in their unregenerate, unsaved, spiritually dead condition seeks after God. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans 3.11. No one seeks after God. No, the reason you are saved, if you are saved here this morning, it has nothing to do with you and it has everything to do with God. And it has everything to do specifically with his effectual, free, uninfluenced, sovereign calling and choice of you. And by the way, that fact isn't a truth that's given to us in scripture as sort of some sort of brain teasing conundrum that we're supposed to figure out. It's not given to us as some sort of bothersome knot to untie. It's not given to us as some sort of theological Rubik's cube that we have to grapple with our entire lives until we get to the bottom of it. No, that truth is given to us in scripture to engender wonder and worship and to evoke the highest praise. As we consider the fact that God's sovereignty in our salvation not only means that our salvation is sure since it is ultimately rooted in him, but that our salvation is secure. It's safe for that very same reason. That's exactly where Paul goes with this truth in Romans chapter eight. In fact, turn with me, if you would, over to Romans chapter eight. We'll pick it up in verse 29. Romans eight twenty-nine says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Who's the actor there? He, God. Salvation is all of God. And then now look at the security that the believer has in knowing that salvation is all of God. Picking up in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Church, I don't know of a more encouraging passage of scripture to reflect upon as a follower of Jesus Christ to reflect upon the fact that our salvation is not only sure, but our salvation is secure. And why? Well, getting back to our text, Colossians 3.12, it's because we've been chosen of God. We've been set apart unto salvation by God, not because we deserved it, not because we earned it, but because God saw fit to make it so, as Ephesians says multiple times, to the praise of his glory. Moving on in our passage Another aspect of this new position that the follower of Christ has and what they've been clothed in is that they are now holy. Look at that next word. It says, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. Now that word holy is the Greek word hagioi, which means set apart. You could even translate the word sanctified. It's the same word from which we get our word saints. In fact, we see Paul use it that way in, in Colossians 1, 2, when he addresses this church as the saints and faithful brethren who are at Colossae. And we see this link, by the way, between being holy and being chosen, not only in Colossians, but in other places in scripture. For instance, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 14, 2, speaking to the Israelites, God says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. And then you get to the New Testament and Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9 says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. As God's chosen ones, as his, his holy ones, we're saints. We're positionally set apart. We're consecrated unto God. Now I get it. We don't always act like saints, do we? No. And that's because we haven't yet received our, or, or achieved our, our one day glorified state. But practically, if we're abiding in Christ and walking with the Lord, we are being sanctified day by day as God through his spirit molds us into greater and greater conformity to the, the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 3.18. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, it says. A saint then is not someone who is revered, A saint is not someone who's prayed to. A saint is not someone a a festival or a feast day is named after. A a saint, rather, a, a holy one, plain and simple, is a follower of Jesus Christ. The person who puts their pants on one leg at a time and realizes that everything they are and everything about them is rooted in the relationship with Christ. That's what it means to be holy, as Paul uses the term here in Colossians 3.12. So as believers, as followers of Christ, we are chosen of God, we're holy. Next, he he mentions this, we are beloved. We're beloved. Now that term there, beloved, as used by Paul here in this context, is not speaking of his personal affection for the Colossians. He's not here saying, Colossians, I just love you so much. Rather, what he's doing here is stressing the fact that as a chosen people, as holy people, as the set-apart ones, they are the objects of God's love. They are beloved by God. And in fact, the word that he uses there in verse 12 for beloved literally translates having been loved. The idea that's being communicated here is we have had God's love 
lavished upon us. As God's chosen ones, we are not only holy, set apart to God and consecrated unto God, we are beloved. We're the recipients of this special kind of love, this electing love, which God imparts only to his chosen ones, to his holy ones. Now, someone might object and raise their hand and say, wait a minute, John 3.16. John 3.16 says God loves the world, does it not? Yes, it does, and, and he sure does. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But the scriptures also teach that God has a special love, a unique love, an, an otherwise indescribable love for his children, for those whom he's chosen, for his elect. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. John 13, 1 says, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Any father in the room knows what's being said right there. As dads, we know that we can have a, a certain type of love for children that we come into contact with generally. The children of our friends or the children of our neighbors or the children that run around here at church all the time. But there is a special love, a unique love, a deep and abiding love between a father and his own children. That's the meaning of this term beloved. We as followers of Jesus Christ are God's beloved children. And knowing this, knowing that we're the objects of his, his special electing love, knowing that we are his holy ones should, should in no way be this point of pride or a reason for some sort of chest-puffed celebration, and certainly not reason for us to look down our noses at all the pagans around us. Rather, what our status as God's beloved ought to do is fuel in us a greater love for God himself and fuel in us a greater love for fellow believers. 1 John 4.11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And it ought to fuel in us a greater love for the lost, for those who right now, who are dead in their sins, are wandering around aimless and hopeless because they've yet to receive forgiveness for their sins and they've yet to receive the promise of eternal life that is offered and granted only through Jesus Christ. Now, I could end the sermon right there, midway through verse 12. And all the Christians in the room here this morning could go home already stuffed with pancakes, feeling quite encouraged, feeling blessed, feeling refreshed. I'm chosen, I'm holy, I'm beloved, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Where are we going to lunch? But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? On this question of identity. No, he continues. After reminding them of who they are, after reminding them of their identity as those who are chosen of God and holy and beloved, he now instructs them as to how they should live. They've already, Colossians 3.10, put on the new self. But now it's time to put on the new clothing by way of practice that matches now their identity. Going back to why I opened the sermon, it's time not only now to take off the Packers shirt, can't believe I'm saying that, but, but put on the 49ers shirt. And that brings us to our next point. As those who have put off the old man and put on the new man, we are to be clothed with new practices. That's our second point. 
clothed with new practices. We're not only clothed with a new position, we're to be clothed with new practices. We pick this up in the middle of verse 12, where after saying we've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, he says, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Anybody ready for some conviction? Now, up to this point, in the development of his clothing metaphor, Paul has been emphasizing more of the negative requirements of how we are to live as Christians. He's saying things like in Colossians 3, 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. Or Colossians 3, 8, put them all aside. Or Colossians 3, 9, lay aside the old self. But now here in verse 12, while continuing with this metaphor of putting on new clothes or changing clothes, he's talking now more about putting on what we're to be clothing ourselves with, like we would with any other physical garment or physical item of clothing. And you see the virtues listed there. We just read them in verses 12 and 13. Uh, There are seven of them with an eighth crowning virtue in verse 14. We'll take these one by one, starting with, he says, we are to put on a heart of compassion. You'll hear me say this from time to time, maybe too much when I'm up here preaching. The Greek word really means this, or a better translation or a better rendition of that term is actually this. Well, in this case, I'm actually quite grateful for our English translation because the English translations have done a fantastic job of smoothing out the actual Greek expression here because the actual Greek expression where it says there, put on a heart of compassion, it actually says in the Greek, put on bowels of mercy. Put on bowels of mercy. That's sort of a jarring, confusing, anachronistic expression, is it not? Bowels of mercy. It sounds so biological, so physiological, so digestive. But how do we get that? How do we get those words, heart of compassion, out of bowels of mercy? Well, in Paul's time, it was common to refer to the inner organs of the body, all of them, the stomach, the heart, the lungs, the liver, as collectively the bowels. And those internal organs, the bowels, because they were thought of as being so soft and squishy and vulnerable, they were thought of as being, well, that must be where our emotions come from, our soft and squishy and vulnerable emotions. So our English Bible translators have actually done a good job here of picking up the actual thought of Paul in his context that he's trying to convey with these words. He's not giving gastronomical advice here. Rather, he's speaking about the inner man, who we are on the inside as we think, as we reason, as we feel. And he's saying here, be compassionate, be merciful, be tender, be sympathetic. Don't be harsh. Don't be brazen. Don't be self-focused. Don't be the glory-robbing fool that the world is calling you to be. Instead, put on a heart of compassion. Mourn with those who mourn. Weep with those who weep. Now, compassion, of course, is a trait that's modeled perfectly by God. Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Lamentations 3.22 says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. James 5.11 says, You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. And we know that compassion was modeled perfectly by the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. Matthew 9.36 says, Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. 
because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. So we, as God's chosen, holy, beloved people, we're to take on a a heart like God's and to follow the example of Christ by displaying compassion toward others. The one who is compassionate doesn't merely deal with others. They don't merely put up with others. They don't merely tolerate others. Instead, they have a heart to reach out to those who are hurting, to those who are burdened, to see if there's something they can do to help them in their time of need. They're like the Samaritan man who who felt and showed compassion to that stranger that was beaten and left for dead in Luke chapter 10. Now here in our church, one way to, to gauge, and just one way, whether you have a heart of compassion is how you react to the daily and the weekly email prayer lists that go out. When you see those prayer lists that go out, I think it's 9 p.m. every day of the week or that once a week email, I think that comes out on Saturday. What do you do with it? Do you pray? Do you pray for anybody on that list? Uh, Do you reach out to anybody on that list? Do you contact the church and ask if there's any way you can minister to those people who are mentioned there on that list? Or does that list get deleted or, or ignored? Sort of thrown into the junk mail category. 1 John three seventeen says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? We as Christ followers are not to have hearts that are closed off, but rather we are to have, as it says here, hearts of compassion. Well, that's just one of the items of, of spiritual clothing that we're to put on. Next, Paul mentions kindness here in verse 12. By the way, I know we had a pancake palooza this morning, so if you're fading and getting tired, feel free to stand up, stretch your legs, turn in circles, keep this thing going, okay? I can't really see you, so I don't know if you're sleeping or not, but just in case. Okay, kindness. What is kindness? Kindness is benevolence in action. It's benevolence in action that's rooted in this gracious disposition and this desire for the good of others. I'll say that again. Kindness is is benevolence in action coupled with a a gracious disposition that's rooted in a desire for good in others or for the good of others. Now, kindness, we know, is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And kindness is modeled perfectly for us by God, specifically in his kindness that he demonstrated towards sinners like you and me when we were still lost and dead in our sin. Titus 3, 4 says, but when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. And one biblical account of of what it looks like to show kindness is found in the life of King David. You'll recall that incident where, you know, King David, his predecessor on the throne was King Saul. And Saul, once David was identified as God's chosen king, despised David and sought to kill him several times. But David never retaliated. David never reciprocated. David never sought to take advantage of Saul. Quite the contrary, David befriended Saul's own son, Jonathan. And after both Saul and Jonathan died, 2 Samuel 9 records David saying this, is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul, that's the guy that was trying to kill him, that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? And it was then that It was brought to David's attention that that Jonathan had a crippled son named Mephibosheth, and that would have been Saul's grandson. And so David sends for Mephibosheth, who on account of his crippled condition was otherwise helpless. 
In 2 Samuel 9, verse 13, the last verse there says, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate at the king's table regularly. So King David, in other words, took him in. That was true kindness in action, true kindness on display, providing for someone who had no ability otherwise to provide for themselves. And that's just one example of the very type of kindness that we as Christians now are called to put on part of the spiritual attire that we're now called to wear. All right, we've seen that we are to put on a heart of compassion. Not only that, we're called to to put on kindness. Next, we see we're to put on humility. Verse 12 still, humility. As Peter puts it in 1 Peter 5, 5, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And here in Colossians, it's just listed there as one word, put on humility. Now, Every single one of these items of clothing that Paul is mentioning here warrants its own sermon. You could preach a sermon on any one of these, kindness. On humility, we could preach multiple sermons and, and do a whole series on humility. But for the sake of time and just to get through this section, I'll just hit the highlights here. First, we need a definition. What is humility? Simply put, humility is, is just having a right estimation of oneself. It's not thinking too highly of oneself. It's having a a proper view of oneself. It's the frame of mind mentioned in in Romans 12, 3, where Paul says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. That's a definition of humility, a right estimation of oneself, a, a right view of oneself. And where do we see humility embodied in the pages of scripture? Well, we see it embodied perfectly, of course, in the life of our Lord. John 13, 14 and 16, this is Jesus speaking. He says, if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent them. In other words, the one who formed the very feet of his disciples when they were in their mother's wombs. He was now washing the feet of those disciples so as to model for all future disciples how we are to demonstrate humble service to other disciples. And of course, the passage we all think about when we think of humility, in fact, you can turn there with me, you know where I'm going, is Philippians 2. Philippians 2 is we consider the importance of being clothed with humility Philippians 2, we'll start in verse 5. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even though... He had every right to do so because he is God. Jesus Christ wasn't thinking too highly of himself, not in his incarnation. It says he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or even in his eventual crucifixion. It says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And as God's chosen people, as his holy set apart people, as his beloved people, we are called to put on humility. Humility that was modeled for us by our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Those who have truly put on humility, they understand that they are purely objects of divine grace. They understand that they are unworthy of the salvation they received. They understand that it is only because of Christ's humbling of himself through his sacrificial atoning death that they have favor with God. They understand that they ultimately have no right to anything they possess, that all they they think they possess actually belongs to God. They understand that that humility and self-love cannot coexist. They understand that humility and selfish ambition cancel each other out. They understand that to be proud of your humility is an oxymoron. They understand that in the family of God, they are no better than any of their brothers and sisters in the faith, but all enter under the shadow of Calvary's cross. They understand that as they encounter unbelievers in their life, their heart's orientation toward those unbelievers ought to be there but for the grace of God go I. They understand that humility is the posture of one who is submitted to the lordship of Christ. And they understand that one of the most natural means of cultivating true humility is the service of others. As we see in Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, it says. Give preference to one another in honor. Humility then is a a, a right estimation of oneself, a modesty of mind, a, a lowliness of thinking. It's much easier talked about than accomplished. And of course, the moment you say you've accomplished it, you prove you never had it. All right, next on the list is getting back to Colossians 3, gentleness, which in older translations, you'll often see translated meekness. And that word gentleness or meekness here doesn't mean timidity. It doesn't mean weakness. It means power under control, strength under control, like a a yoked ox or a harnessed horse that can be turned in any direction by the will of its master. Gentleness, meekness is the opposite of insubordination. It's the opposite of harshness. It's the opposite of arrogance, which actually were traits that were valued in the Roman empire of Paul's day. Rather, gentleness or or meekness was a trait that was ascribed to to Jesus. In Matthew 11, 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It was a trait that was modeled by Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 23 says, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. It's a trait that was commended by Jesus. Matthew 5, 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And it's part of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. And we see this essential part of the Christian's clothing mentioned in various other parts of Scripture. For instance, in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. Uh, Pastor Mike was in this text last week in the excellent sermon he preached to, to you via camera last week, where it says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Bring it back to Colossians 3, though. We are to put on gentleness. Moving on, we keep going, and he says, we're also to put on patience. That's the last one mentioned in verse 12, patience, the last item of clothing in this verse. The word for patience there is macrothumia, which means literally wrath that is put far away. Wrath that is put far away. Among the deeds of the flesh, 
mentioned in Galatians 5 are outbursts of anger in Galatians 5.20. But spirit-controlled believers, those who have put on the new self, are committed to putting aside wrath and putting on patience. Now, that doesn't mean that the spirit-directed, spirit-filled, spirit-controlled believer isn't around people ever that test their patience. But the patient person, or as some of the older translations render it, the long-suffering person, they're going to demonstrate a steady pattern of self-restraint in the face of provocation. And in doing so, they're going to mirror the patience that God has demonstrated towards sinners throughout history. 1 Peter 3.20 says, The patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. God was very patient toward Noah. Or Romans 2.4 says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God's being patient right now toward the unbeliever. In demonstrating patience as believers, we mirror not only the patience of God the Father, though, we mirror, mirror the patience of God the Son, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.16 says, For this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. The patient person, the long-suffering person, the one who, who puts wrath far away is not quick to anger. They don't boil with resentment. They don't seek to exact revenge. Rather, they're resolute in their refusal to retaliate. They're willing to endure an offense. They're willing to withstand provocation and model steadfastness in the hour of oppression. They're even willing to persevere in suffering, knowing ultimately that they're entrusting their souls, 1 Peter 4.19, to a faithful creator while doing what is right. Colossians 3.12, we are to put on patience. Now we turn to verse 13. And Paul here in verse 13 gives us two additional items of, of spiritual clothing that we're to put on as part of our new identity in Christ. First, we see it right there at the head of verse 13. We are to be bearing with one another. That one relates very closely to patience, which we just covered. But the basic idea here with bearing one another is that we're to put up with each other. And that trait of bearing of forbearance, of putting up with this item of spiritual clothing that we're to put on, it finds its supreme example in God himself who has been bearing with sinners for a very, very long time. Romans three twenty three. You know the beginning part, but let's see as we read the rest. Romans three twenty three. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Have you ever thought about this fact? That, that God could have wrapped up this whole thing a long time ago. Long before you and I were born, conceived, took our first breath, uh, long before you and I ever came to saving faith, certainly, he had every right to never create us in the first place. He had every right 
to leave us with no options once he did create us. He had every right to close every door and to to destroy this planet and to wipe each of us out, every one of us. But he didn't. He hasn't yet. But he will. He's bearing. He's forbearing. He's a long-suffering and patient God. And now that we have been reconciled to him, we're going to be bearing with one another, putting up with one another, enduring one another. Do you find anybody in the church here that's hard to put up with? Don't raise your hands, please. Don't point fingers. Do you ever find yourself surrounded maybe more by more cold shoulders than, than warm embraces? Maybe more frosty glares than sunny dispositions? The old sanctimonious stink eye? Well, the world is gonna tell you to walk away, to hightail it out of here, to leave. Your flesh is gonna wanna quit, to just stop. Which is sadly the trend in our day with members of churches just leaving when things don't go their way. I mean, tragically, the the divorce culture of the world has crept into the church. And rather than seeing themselves as as part of a family, which, which barring very few exceptions, create lifetime bonds, people take off when a decision is made they don't agree with. Or when they hear about a church where the pastor's a little less serious or doesn't wear a tie or tells more funny jokes or, or makes them feel better about themselves on their drive home. Christians don't hightail it out of church when things don't go their way. Christians don't cut and run. Instead, they humble themselves before God. They pray to that God. They discuss any concerns they have with the under shepherds that have been appointed by God And they ultimately submit to the authority of those very same under shepherds and they bear with one another. And they bear with one another because they love each other. And they love each other because they remember the words of Christ who told us that the very way the world will know that we belong to him is is how. That we love each other. John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. More on love in just a moment. Back to verse 13. As if forbearing doesn't sound like a daunting enough task on some days, Paul next says we're to be forgiving each other, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. And then he adds this, just as the Lord forgave you. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now those words are, Simple enough to understand, are they not? The principle is very simple, and the principle is very clear. The context here is the Christian community, hence the the each other words that we see here in verse 13. The follower of Jesus Christ, the one who says he has put off the old man and has put on the new man, is not frugal in his forgiveness of others. He's free in his forgiveness of others. The one who has put off the old man and put on the new man, he goes beyond forbearance. He goes beyond just passing over the offenses that are committed against him. He goes further than that. And he extends forgiveness. Even when he feels slighted. Even when he has a grievance. Even when he has a complaint. What's the point of forgiveness if it's not in one of those contexts? 
the one who has put off the old man, the one who has put on the new man, doesn't hold the person who has offended him or, or grieved him to a higher standard than what God's word declares by demanding that that person make a variety of different assurances or, or promises before forgiveness will be extended. No forgiveness is to be extended with how many strings attached? None. You don't find a Bible verse. You won't find a Bible verse which grants you permission to withhold forgiveness, total forgiveness, complete forgiveness until your own self-imposed conditions are satisfied. No, the biblical standard is that forgiveness be immediate and total and sincere. Look at the words of our text again, Colossians 3.13. We are to be bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. The companion verse for this one is Ephesians 4, 31 and, and 32. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. There is no wiggle room here. There is no gray areas here. These are clear commands, commands which are ultimately rooted in the words of our Lord in his greatest moments of agony on the cross in the midst of being murdered. Remember what he said in Luke chapter 23, 34, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Yeah, but he never takes the trash out. Yeah, but, but she's not the same person that she was when we got married. Yeah, but he's an awful boss. Yeah, but he's a terrible neighbor. Yeah, but he's a long-winded pastor. Stop it. It doesn't matter. If you were a child of God, you are one of the most privileged people in the world. You are the most privileged people in the world. And you ought to be acting like it. You, me, all of us, we're to be forgiving one another. Plain and simple. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now, might wisdom need to be exercised in terms of what a relationship looks like after forgiveness has been extended? Most definitely. If a husband has committed adultery, can the wife look at his phone forever after that as trust is being rebuilt? Absolutely. If a child has lied but been forgiven, might they be under a closer watch by their parents? Sure. If an employee has stolen but is forgiven, might they still be fired or put on some kind of disciplinary system? Sure. But the consequences of one's sin should not be confused with the total and absolute responsibility to forgive the sins committed against you by others. Even if consequences necessarily may follow, forgiveness is mandatory. We are to be, as Ephesians 5.1 says, imitators of God as his beloved children. And does God forgive? Absolutely he does. Everybody in this room who is a follower of Christ would testify to that. Do you want to be an imitator of God as Ephesians 5.1 declares? Do you want to be, grow in Christ's likeness? Do you want to see the Lord honored? Do you want to see his bride, the church, purified? Well, then be that Christian who is lavish, who lavishes forgiveness on others, graciously, charitably, don't be pearl clutching when it comes to forgiveness. Commit to being a free forgiver, not a frugal forgiver. All right, we've seen 
point one, that we've been clothed with a new position. That's the first part of verse 12. We've seen that we've been clothed with new practices. That's verse 12 into verse 13. Last, verse 14, we're gonna see we are clothed with a new priority. Look at verse 14. He says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Beyond all these things. The clause there could also be rendered above all these things, right? I think even better is on top of all these things. The image I think is, is that of an overcoat, which is put on top of all the other virtues and attributes that we've just worked through. An overcoat, a timely image for us right now in light of the weather we've had of late in Nebraska. A person might put on an overcoat on a cold day to cover the, the sweater and the shirt underneath in a similar way that the Christian is to put on love on top of each of the other virtues that we see here in verses 12 and 13. Love, we know, is the supreme Christian virtue. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Paul infamously refers to faith, hope, and love, and then he says the greatest of these is what? Love. Love is the final article of clothing that completes the Christian spiritual attire. As followers of Christ, we've been shown indescribable depths of love by God. Romans 5, 5 says the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit given to us. Now we are to model that love, especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ in the household of faith. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Now sadly, this is when many Christians and and where many Christian churches get it this wrong. They will say we've put on all the other attire that's associated with faithful Christian living, or, or so they think. But like the kid that runs out of the house without a coat on a sub-zero day, they leave off the most important part, love. They become eventually like that church at Ephesus that Jesus addresses in Revelation chapter two. Straight as an arrow theologically, but lacking in love practically. As orthodox as the day is long, but short on love. Able to debate doctrine until they're blue in the face, but unable to love the brother who is doubting or the sister who is struggling. They lack love, and that's not okay. Not in the household of God, which is established in love and grounded in love, the love that God has shown us, each one of us who are in Christ, through Christ. Beyond all these things, verse 14, put on love. And as we come to the end of verse 14, we see this love is described as the perfect bond of unity. Put another way, the love we show others here in the body of Christ is like the belt that keeps the rest of our apparel in place. Uh, We see a parallel phrase in Ephesians 4, 2 and 3, which says, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond, the belt of peace. I love how John MacArthur describes this unifying aspect of the love we're to show one another. He writes, supernatural love poured into the hearts of believers is the adhesive of the church. That's right. Love we show one another as believers, that sacrificial agape style, others focused love is what holds and ties everything together. Love then is not merely an additional garment Love is not optional. Rather, it is the supreme characteristic of the Christian. It's the crowning grace of of the new man that he is called to put on. 
And it's the trait that that ties together, holds together each of the other virtues we've been looking at this morning. Why do we put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and forgiveness? Why? We do so out of love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We recognize day over day, or at least we ought, what undeserved recipients we are of the great love of God. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. One thing I didn't mention about my friend George at the beginning of the sermon, the whole 49ers Packers thing or Cowboys Packers thing, one thing I didn't mention about him is he is a brother in the Lord. Uh, He is a follower of Christ. And when my Packers we're not saving this score news for later today. When my Packers lost to his 49ers last night, guess who was the first person to send me a text? George. And George in his text didn't gloat. He didn't talk trash. He didn't brag. Actually, what he did is he checked in to see how my boys were doing. What was, what was George doing in that moment? He was putting on love. And this isn't just about last night, and this, just, this isn't just about sports. The reality is George has walked through various peaks and valleys with me and my family in our walk of faith. He's been there through medical trials. He's been there through family trials. He's been there through employment trials. He has continually, beyond all these things, put on love. I pray that we have people in our lives that are doing that for us, that are demonstrating that type of love to to us as brothers and sisters in the faith. But I also pray that we would be motivated to be those people in others' lives, the way that George has been to me and to, to my family, people who are committed to beyond all these things, putting on love. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time together in your word. I thank you for everyone's patience this morning. Uh, with me, with the long-winded message, with the raspy voice. I pray that the, the truth of your word has been clear. I pray that the, 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 the truth that you have declared in these three verses will resonate. I pray that your spirit will seal these truths to our hearts and encourage us in our walks with you, Lord. I do pray that we would each uh, in this room remember our identity as those who have been chosen of God if we are in Christ, as those who are holy, as those who are beloved, And that that would then in turn engender and fuel all these practices Paul lists out for us as befitting our new identity in Christ. And I do pray that we would see that crowning virtue, that of love, uh, as the hallmark of what it means to live for Jesus Christ. I pray that this would be a church that is not like the Ephesians church, a church that is sound in doctrine only, but lacking in love. But why couldn't we be both? We're called to be both, to be faithful to the truth while at the same time being abundant in our love for you and love for one another. May we be that church to the praise of your glory in Jesus' name, amen.